Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. production. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. We're in Santa Barbara and Bliss's Sanctuary with my incense burning he said incest earlier <laughs> i did not incense burning yeah and a, a picture of a beautiful husky uh, on the wall behind us mad dogging us we're in bliss's kitchen with no air conditioning per usual yeah we didn't have air and conditioning it, and it's a old. very hot day in santa barbara 80 at 10 o'clock yeah in the morning yeah before true. 10 o'clock in the it's true well thanks to global warming. but you know what we're, you know why we're okay because we have our salty as fuck <laughs> element. Yeah, so. we went on a walk today and uh, we might as well just do the commercial right now. <laughs> okay, let's do the commercial right now. What are we drinking? We are drinking raspberry salt um, in our awesome water bottles that we got from uh, our <laughs> lovely sponsor, Element. And um, we really actually do like it. Yep. It tastes really good. Uh, Stu dilutes it a little bit. He feels it's a little strong, but I did a full full packet three quarters there you go that's right. stew's dosage yeah it's pretty salty and, and it's tasty salty af but after we went for a hike this morning we took uh zoe for a walk and then up a hill and it was sweaty uh it's good to come back and drink your element it's good for people well it's a tasty electrolyte drink that has all the good stuff and none of the bs like right. us none of the bs and it's good for people working out it's good for pregnant women it's good for birth workers it's good for pretty much anybody replacing some of the crappy stuff that a lot of people drink, including myself. Yeah. And, so, and I, um, I'm on a liver detox right now. Uh, thanks to Nathan Riley. Uh, Dr. Nathan Riley helped me get on this detox. And so I'm, uh, not drinking alcohol, although I had a glass with you last night. Um, and, and, uh, yeah. And, um, but I'm looking for ways to have things to drink that I enjoy that don't have a lot of sugar in them because sugar can not be good for you either and pack on pounds. So um, I'm really enjoying. So we want to thank Element for being our sponsor. You go, and if you want to thank them too, go to drinkelement.com. And whatever you order, you're going to get a uh, free sample pack with every order that you get and use the code word birthing instincts. So that's drinkelement.com, code birthing instincts for a free sample pack with your order. Thanks, Element. Thank you, Element. Speaking of Santa Barbara um, and speaking of uh, things going on up here, we did something fun yesterday. We did. Yeah. So why don't you tell people what we well, did? Well, um, Stu, I said, when are you going to come see me? And he said, I'll come up Tuesday night and we'll go out to dinner and then, um, and then record the podcast together, which I always love when we get to sit next to each other. Um, so we did, we had planned, um, with centerline community, I think they're called centerline, centerline community, com, I think right. um, that does a lot of events, uh, for moms out here, like moms groups and stuff like that. Um, they wanted to do a, uh, talk on birthing options here in Santa Barbara. So it was originally Anastasia and I, and then I asked Dr. Stu to come and then Dr. Melissa Drake showed up. And then Alyssa from the birth center. And then we had some other postpartum doulas and lactation consultants that were joining us as well. And then probably like 12 
15,000? At least 12 to 15 yeah. families were there. It was beautiful. It was in the Rose Garden of the Santa Barbara Mission mm -hmm. uh, outside. It was a lovely evening. Uh, we got to watch the sun go slowly down. Yeah, behind the mission. That and we had lovely. a great conversation. And I, it was fascinating for me as being sort of an interloper into the community up here. I used to come up here not infrequently, but I haven't been involved in Santa Barbara in the last few years. Um, since Dr. Drake actually was available and was around. Which yeah. before, before I was up here a lot before she became available. Now she's not available anymore, but now I'm on sabbatical. But it was really interesting hearing the questions that came from the community because clearly this community is more stifled and and, and um, what you would say traditionally medical yeah. than what we're used to down our area in SoCal. Yeah, so, I'm learning that more and more as I have conversations with people. Um, that there's yeah, they've never heard some of the stuff that you people who who follow us on on uh, the podcast uh, that we call fellow travelers. You, you, you know, they they didn't really hear about mammalian birth before or about the cascade of interventions. Or I mean, some of them had, but a lot of them it was the first time they'd ever heard of such stuff. Yeah, right. I thought it would be fun to kind of address a couple of the questions that were asked. Okay. Yeah. So one that I thought was really interesting was a mom who's pregnant again, who pushed for six hours on an epidural at the hospital, ended up having a vacuum, um, was asking if it, she was now considered high risk because of her previous birth experience. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. First of all, it's interesting that, that she's not, by the way, she's not, but it's interesting because I, I got to believe that she's considered, she even thought the question because of the culture up here. Yeah. And that somebody probably said to her that because you had a vacuum in this pregnancy, you, it's going to be very difficult for you or something in the second, in the subsequent pregnancy, which is absolutely not true. Every pregnancy is different. As you, you, you like to say, every baby's like its own lock and key. I like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's unique and multi-births multi are almost universally easier. And the success rate for multi-births in the community birth setting is close to, you know, it's 99%. Yeah. Plus. So that was an interesting one. What, what Which one sticks out in your mind? Well, there was a lot of questions about the VBAC mis misinterpretation um, uh, and the risks of VBAC and, yeah. the, and the misunderstanding of how, um, why Cottage Hospital doesn't, do VBAC, but uh, because of the risk of rupture, but then when we break down the numbers of what the risk is, they may not see one every four years, but in the meantime, they're going to have dozens and dozens of people who have emergency C-sections for other reasons, and they can handle those just fine. Mm -hmm. And then we talked about the sort of the fantasy of them saying that we're going to try to get, we're going to recruit doctors to be laborists. Um, they're having a hard time recruiting people. They need to get apparently four and they have gotten none so far. They tell, they said they're going to open up for VBAC at the, you know, in the fall, which is essentially what a month away. Mm -hmm. And that's never going to happen because it takes 90 days or more to just be credentialed at that hospital. Mm -hmm. And then it gets back to something that I think Anastasia said at one point or in the article, somebody said that, that, Waiting for a VBAC is not is, is not a concierge service or something right. like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And if they can handle you know normal obstetrical complications, then this would be no different in terms. So either they can handle complications at the hospital or they can't. So yeah. Okay. 
but it was a lovely it was a lovely experience it reminded me of the days when we were at the sanctuary totally and we had meet the midwife on when on wednesday nights it was called it was. nervous anticipation that's right yeah that's now i remember <laughs> that yeah and we would sit there sometimes we'd have two couples sometimes you'd have 10 couples mm -hmm. and it'd be you and me and usually alex or one of the other midwives from the group uh Elliot Berlin came a few times yeah you know who came once or twice was uh Dr. Lapellis early in his oh. career remember he sat in yeah yeah um so anyway we're just reminiscing this is what we do when we get together <laughs> yeah we stayed up to talking last night we got a little bit dozy after we drank some wine but um anyway today um we're gonna shorten a little podcast because we have uh, a recorded interview with our winner. contest winner, Yay. Psycho Dr. Julie. Uh, <laughs> so that's going to be coming out the, the second half of the podcast. So we've just got a few things that but I... But I have a gift for you first. Oh, you do? I do. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. You guys can't see it, but I will make sure and take a picture. I got um, a unicorn... Uh, what do you call it? Headband, headband for Dr. Stu. And I got one for Melissa, who I haven't given to you. Actually, you know, it's supposed to come out of the forehead. Do you know why I got them? Do you remember why? Well, we're unicorns. Because we're unicorns. Right. Yay. Right. So anyway, that's your gift. <laughs> oh, it's degenerated, it's degenerated rather quickly. Um, well, let's talk about, let's talk about some other Anyway. <laughs> Thank you for my gift. I'll, I'll, I'll wear it proudly as they drive down the highway. Good, good, good. Right. I'll get pulled over, I'm sure. Um, so let's, uh, I've got a, I've got a couple of letters here from people that I, I'd like to, um, get to. And I, I think I'll start with the short one from Nadine, if I can find it. Here it is. Okay. So this is from last month and she writes, um, Hi, Dr. Stu and Bliss, me again. Oh, the theme, by the way, uh, with Dr. Psycho Julie is sort of like, how do we deal with fear and in, 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 in fear in, in life in general, but in pregnancy? Mm -hmm. So um, in our profession, and a lot of what we do during the podcast is we talk about things and try to give you straight shoot, a, a straight shot of what is the truth as we see it regarding issues where most of medicine will look at it as being something very fearful, something very, very scary. They'll tell somebody that, like this lovely lady that said you had a vacuum with your first baby and you pushed for six hours. Now, we didn't ask the questions, but I, I can already know the answers to the questions to that would have been, were you numb? Yes. yes. Were you coached to push? Yes. Did you ever have a sensation of pushing? Probably not. Right. So finally, they got to the point where they put a vacuum on, but they, you know, the whole thing. Was she on her back? Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing was sort of, they created the problem and then they solved the problem and then they tell her she's going to have future problems. Right. Right. I mean, it's pretty, it's so obvious once you so, see this. Yes. Yeah. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Okay. Anyway, Nadine writes, um, I adore your podcasts. We always put that in there, right? <laughs> and have been listening now to at least three of them a day. So she, Nadine obviously has no life. No. <laughs> She's an avid listener. She spends a lot awesome. of time in her car yeah. or around her house. I feel like a podcast junkie. <laughs> I have searched the web and have found no answers regarding the following and was hoping you two could help me out. The first question is, 
How do I or my client respectfully yet firmly say no to an OBGYN who is clearly bullshitting and following protocol? By the way, those two are the same thing, right? Bullshitting <laughs> and following protocol. I mean, maybe if you well, most protocol, most protocols are designed not with necessarily the client in mind. No, it's not individualized. It's it's, it's standardized designed to care. Protect the hospital, the institution, the nurse. Um, it's designed to as if the people that went through all this training and nursing and residency and stuff come out and don't know anything and they need to be told each time how to do something. Yes. Right. Because it needs to be standardized because it's a large organization with lots of moving parts. I was telling somebody the other day, it's kind of like when you go through Chipotle, you know, like they do it the same every time so that there's not a mistake. It's measured and it's the same every time so that there's not an error. When you have more individualized care and you know somebody, you, you can be more organic, but they really feel like if they don't have these set out protocols and someone really thinks for themselves, they could make a mistake. Yeah, but a, and then a chopped chicken salad is not <laughs> the same thing. No, it should not be, but this well, is in industrialized nation. So it reminds me of something I heard um, I was listening and I heard a senator talking about this new bill that's passed where they where one of the things of the bill is they're going to bring in 87,000 new IRS agents. I don't know if you paid any attention to that. No. All right. That's more than doubling the size of the IRS. And when he was asked by a reporter, isn't this just going to be more bureaucracy? And isn't this good? He says, no, no, it's going to make it so that when you call the IRS, you're actually going to get someone to answer the phone. They're going to be able to answer. Does anyone actually believe that? Does anyone actually believe that as things get bigger, they get more personal? Yeah. Ever. Yeah. In the history of mankind. <laughs> no. All right. So talk about bullshitting. But these guys are experts at it. People in at high ranking administrative positions or politicians um, just they they have a a, a PhD and how and how to answer a question by not answering the question and by leading you down a path. Does anybody really believe these eighty seven thousand new IRS agents are there to make your life easier? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. All right. So how would we how would we recommend? Let's break these Let's break questions down. down. Yeah. Well, she wants to know how do I I guess as her. Uh, as a doula mm -hmm. or, or midwife mm -hmm. and or the client respectfully yet firmly well it's easy to it's easy to do that um how they respond is not up to you you cannot you're not in control of how they respond mm -hmm. but your question is you could say are there other options or what is the actual risk of something what are the alternatives what happens if we don't do that those sorts of things you can you can speak to them and then you should do this, by the way, I believe early on in your prenatal care, because you need to find out how they answer these questions and how they deal with a little bit of adversity coming their way. Because if they're uncomfortable with that at the beginning, or if you challenge them and they react badly, um, run, run away, <laughs> run, away. Red flag. Yeah. run away. Run away. <laughs> and the other thing I would say is if you're actually, you've done all those questioning and you've gotten information, you can say, thank you so much for your recommendation. I am going to decline. So you want to be, you want to do it graciously. Yeah. You want to thank them, take into consideration that you've hired them as, as the professional that you're wanting advice from, um, and, and give, 
give them that acknowledgement and then make a decision to say, you know, thank you so much for giving me all of that information. I have evaluated the risks and benefits for myself and my family and I'm going to decline. I like that. I like that. Even if sometimes they may, some of these people may not be deserving of respect, you do get more peas with honey than with vinegar. Of course, and you did hire them. Most not necessarily, not necessarily. Sometimes yeah. you're Sometimes in, you you're in a group. In. Yeah. You're in a group and you and this person is in the group and it's uh it's that day to see that person. You really want to see another person, but the way their group works, you right. you get whoever they get. And of right. course, when you're in labor, you, it is a total crapshoot when you're in that sort of a system. But you you know, if, if you're a low-risk mom, you did you did make that decision. So Right. Yeah. And I'm not sure that there's any way that you're going to necessarily get satisfaction because I think people who are open to that sort of thing are not the kind of people who are bullshitting you in the first place. They present things where you don't feel like it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Right. And you have to also understand that when you define something, you're more than likely they're going to ask you to sign something against medical advice. So you just need to be prepared for those things. You put yourself into that situation. You're going to decline the things that they're suggesting. You know that more than likely, unless you have a really straightforward birth, as you said yesterday, you walk in at nine centimeters and your baby's about to fall out, then, you know, you probably won't, they won't have time to do things, but you know, that is part of what is going to have to happen. So you have to be willing to take responsibility to say, I have done the risk benefit analysis. I have now declined what this provider, nurse, doctor, whoever is recommending, and I'm going against their medical advice. So, you know, when I had to do that in the past, I knew that that was coming. And I was, you know, I would say, I'm happy to sign whatever you would like for me to sign. Don't get offended that they want you to sign that. That's part of what they have to do for for them. Yeah. And also, if they if they seem to be that type of person, and you come in with, you know, they say something at one visit, you come in the next visit with some literature or something that's counter to what they say, that's probably not going to be very well received. What do you mean by that? Well, they say that the that you need to have a repeat C-section because you've already had two C-sections. Mm-hmm. And they say that it's illegal or that it's dangerous or whatever else. And you come in next week with data that ACOG actually supports you back after two C-sections. You're saying that that probably just isn't the right practice. It's not the right, well, and it's not the right tack to take with them. And she wants to know, you know, how do you... Uh, question is how do I like, respectfully and firmly say no you're not going to necessarily they, they've got a hierarchical ego that's going on here and they're they're here and they think you're down here and you know it's going to be very hard to have that discussion with them and bring in literature because all that's going to do is potentially embarrass them so you because don't think bringing asking bringing in more information is helpful. I think that if you get to the point where you where they're telling you things that are clearly not true that that's just not the doctor for you yeah right right the second is when it comes to giving birth to the placenta without the pitocin shot that is routinely given here in nova scotia during the birthing phase i guess that's once the baby's out before anything else happens what is the normal and natural way for the placenta to be birthed how long does it take for the uterus to shed the placenta and what optimal position would you recommend? One of my clients wants to have a lotus birth without any medications if possible, before, during, or after birth. Thank you so much. Big hugs from Nova Scotia. Uh, Nadine from Holistic Doula Services. So 
let's take that, let's break that down and says, what is the normal and natural way for placenta being birthed? <laughs> um, it's to wait until the mom starts to have contractions again. Um, keep the mom and baby together. Um, do not interrupt the process of them bonding. So keep the lights low, you know, keep voices um, low. Not to say that the family can't interact, but as the practitioner, you don't want to interfere in that process. Um, that is a definite way to support the physiologic process to happen. And in terms of how long it takes, it could take a few minutes to, I've heard midwives wait for several hours. So you're going to have to figure out what your comfort level is in terms of how long you wait. Um, most of the time they will come under an hour. Um, so it's a process of waiting. You'll see um, a, a little bit of bleeding the separation gush, and then it, and then usually a lengthening of the cord. The mom will sometimes make grimaces and faces like she's feeling uncomfortable. Um, and then if you wanted to do it completely physiologically, her squatting would probably be the best way for her to be able to do that, put a pad underneath her. She could pull on the cord a little bit if she wanted to, or she could just kind of, uh, you know, push it out and you could encourage her um, to push it out. Sometimes there's an intensity as um, you know, the pressure builds within their uterus to expel the placenta. So sometimes the, you can tell they're just getting really uncomfortable and then the relief from releasing it. It's the body's way of saying, there's something else to take care of. There's something else to do. Just like, you know, if you really have to go to the bathroom, right? You just start to feel really uncomfortable and you know that that's time, so. Yeah, and I would just say that the Dean uses the word that, that it's routinely given here in Nova Scotia. Again, this is a protocol. Oh yeah. Yeah, the idea that every single woman needs to get an artificial drug to get her placenta out is something that only modern medicine could could come, come up with. Yeah, could come <laughs> up with. Okay. And um, yeah, as if they're having a huge rash of postpartum hemorrhages or anything like that. So, you know, there was a paper that came out that said active management of the third. By the way, that's another euphemism. Active, active management. How about invasive management of the third stage? I like it. Um, uh, was something, and so some people will just adopt it. And people who create policies, this is what they love doing. They love going through and cherry picking data that that confirms their beliefs, and and then ignoring the data that doesn't. Um, there's also guidelines in in uh, obstetrical literature that talk about 30 minutes, maybe 45, maybe 60 minutes max. At that point, it makes sense to go up and get it. Not 30. Is it? Is it longer than that? Oh, yeah. Well, whatever it is, it's what I don't remember what the number was, but there's a, again, a number. And if you know the Birthing Instincts podcast rule about even numbers, right? When they tell you that, that you, it has to be out within 60 minutes or 45 minutes, that's made up. Oh, no, that might be the number that they would say. I'm just saying, please don't do Oh, no, no. Oh, yeah. No, no. I'm saying, minutes. I think yeah. there was a paper or something yeah. that said 30 minutes. Yeah. And, and all I'm saying is, again, that's, that's an artificial time. It doesn't really make any sense. If you're hemorrhaging, if you're bleeding too much yeah. and the placenta isn't coming out, there's a reason to intervene. But if you're just waiting, part of the reason they don't wanna wait is because they all wanna move on to the next task. Right. Because you're not the only person, you're just talking about a hospital birth. You're not the only person, you can't tie up the staff that long. That's how they look at it. So that's why they have these protocols in place to expedite things along. Same thing with the second twin, but that's a whole other topic. So um, yeah, we wait 
for quite a while, unless we see bleeding. But I, I'm generally checking the fundus periodically during that period of time, just feeling it, making sure it's massaging or, or no, just feeling where it is, where it is, and does it is it firm? And then if it starts to get a little bit later, we want to get the baby on the breast. That may help with uterine contractions. May help with the getting the placenta out. But sometimes, and I'll, I'll say that this is the technique that I've learned is that sometimes you're waiting for the placenta and it's actually already detached, and it's just sitting in the lower uterine segment. And you can just, if you gently take a finger and follow the cord up, you can feel the placenta just sitting there. Then you might want to help the placenta out because what might be happening is you might be ending up building up a lot of blood and blood clots up behind it. Sometimes they do, but but usually if you just leave it alone and it comes out, then you'll get a big clot. And sometimes, uh, you know, what we would consider like the normal amount of blood to follow, but that's when we see the most bleeding. And I, and, you know, fiddling with the fundus, as I've said before, or, um, you know, pulling it out can sometimes cause more, but I, I know what you're saying, just to, just to make sure that you're managing. And isn't, isn't there something about getting people to stand upright or get okay. on the toilet, get on the toilet? But them... we're talking about physiologic, you know, all of that, like giving herbs and, and, uh, giving traction and getting her up to pee and putting the baby to breast. All of that is us from the outside, having a concern and starting to intervene which they can help and it's probably better than Pitocin. But if we're just talking about physiologic birth then none of that stuff would be part of it because the mom would just be listening to her instincts. Okay. Yeah. Hope that answers the question, Nadine. I would love to, I've always wanted to go visit Nova Scotia. I, I just don't ever see how that's going to ever happen. <laughs> just, yeah. I mean, in, until we have a, a change in policies and protocols, <laughs> Governments do the same thing that hospitals do. They have one size fits all policies and protocols. And so I would love to go to Canada, but I'm not sure that that's gonna happen. Okay, so we're running, again, we're running short on time. So we're not gonna get to all the letters here. I'm gonna just read one more <laughs> before we get to Julie. All right. Um, so uh, this one is from Megan. And I need my glasses, of course. Hello, Bliss and Dr. Stu. I'm a longtime listener of your podcast. I look forward to each new episode. It's nice to hear people speaking the truth in the birth world. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, and the world in general, she says. <laughs> I'm a mom of two. My first son was born in a hospital with a CNM who practiced in the OBGYN office. Okay, a little bit of a red flag. Um, I work with two CNMs, but I was a different type of OB back then. But a lot of CNMs who work with OBs are following essentially the OB protocols. And I believe I was misdiagnosed with gestational diabetes after taking the glucola test, uh, causing me a lot of stress to prick my finger four times a day when my blood sugar levels were never abnormal once in my pregnancy. For this reason, I had a lot of pressure to be induced nearing my due date, even though I, there was no reason to. I was at the hospital for a biophysical profile, which she wouldn't have been needing either. Mm -hmm. All this because she had a one abnormal, I don't know how they what tests they did it was probably just the one hour mm -hmm. and maybe they did the three hour I don't know because it's not there but we're based on a test that all along she had normal blood sugars which basically is much more accurate than doing the test absolutely she was told that she needed to be induced she was getting unnecessary testing she got an unnecessary vaginal exam when she went in to be for her biophysical profile and she was five centimeters dilated Without feeling any contractions, however, my midwife broke my water due to concerns about blood pressure being high, and my body went straight into transition. 
I had coach pushing on my back where my baby's heart rate decelerated, which led to, quote, needing, unquote, a vacuum extraction. As a first-time mom, my labor was only two and a half hours, and I was in shock at how precipitous my labor was. So again, if we talk about a cascade of interventions, this is a classic example. It didn't lead to C-section, but everything that happened to this woman was probably not necessary. Right. Right. And if we actually pulled her chart and looked at the records, we'd probably be able to prove that. Yeah. And, you know, if if her bag hadn't been broken, I don't know how high her blood pressure was at that moment. We don't know any yeah. of this stuff. But, you know, if it was really high, then, you know, helping the baby come out sooner um, is is warranted because really super high blood pressure can cause um, stroke and seizures. Yeah, it's just the kind of thing, though, that so. when when you're being gaslit or when you're being sort of misled through all the way through the pregnancy, when someone actually tells you the truth, yeah. How do you know? It's hard to assess. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, this time around, I planned a home birth and educated myself through pregnancy by listening to podcasts like yours and other great ones. The midwifery model of care is amazing, and I've never felt more supported in my pregnancy. It's true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> I did not have gestational diabetes this pregnancy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Even though I really never thought I had it with my first, mm -hmm. which is correct. So you weren't diagnosed with it this time. I practiced positive affirmations and hypnobirthing through my pregnancy, which I think prepared me to trust my instincts in this labor. Labor started spontaneously in April at 9.40 p.m. And again, I felt like my body went straight into transition again this time. My son was born at 10.43. Yeah, very precipitous. 60, 63 <laughs> minutes. At home with my midwives on the way. He was born healthy and screaming. My husband calmly caught him, and I was in disbelief if I, I had my home birth without any assistance. My body knew exactly what to do. That's right. It does. We should just stop right there. <laughs> yeah. Your body knows exactly what to do most of the time if you just leave it alone. And that's where the medical model just can't leave it alone. Yeah. They can't. No monitoring, no checks, just nature doing its thing. I trusted and listened to my body and was just along for the ride. I did not have to push my push. My body did it for me. I mean, this is classic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was a beautiful experience, birth. How I, it was beautiful to experience birth, how I truly believe it was meant to be. I'm now seven weeks postpartum. It's been a completely different experience having the postpartum care with a midwife team. That's true, too. Yeah. We talked about that yesterday. Mm -hmm. The huge difference between the kind of care you get in, a, in an obstetrician's practice versus the kind of care you get in a midwife's practice. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Drake and I, as obstetricians sitting there, we're completely 100% in agreement. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. We're not offended. <laughs> okay. So as a mom who has precipitous labors, I'm curious, how often do you see this in your practice? And curious if you could share this topic. And so we are. Um, so how often do we see this in our practice? Precipitous labors? In a Which is defined time? as what? Less than two hours? Three hours. Oh. Yeah. Less than three hours. I thought it was two. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe maybe hours. in the midwifery literature. <laughs> maybe not. In, literature, in my mind. Um, in a first-time delivery, um, I would say 5%, 3%, something like that. I, you know, we're making it up? Yeah, I'm totally making it up. I'm just thinking of my personal experience. This is guilty. You're guilty of making up numbers. I am. Yeah. I'm guesstimating. Yes, there's no way to know that. I it's, didn't do the scientific it's, it's study. It's very rare in first-time moms. 
Yeah. It's also yeah, it's also moderately rare in in multips. It's not unheard of, and but a but a sixty three minute labor. Um, that was for a second, yeah. That for the second baby, mm -hmm. that's it's fast, rare. Yeah, very and a blessing. <laughs> yeah, we we say that you know when babies come fast, it means everything is working. So just enjoy the process. And a lot of uh, families where the mom or dad catches their own baby before a midwife or doula is arriving, um, that they usually feel really empowered by the experience. And it sounds like that was how you felt. So we're so glad that you shared. Yeah. And so that's, that's just a great, the second half of your story is a great story. The first half of your story is not a great story. And that's the nature of sort of our profession is what we sit here. We're not our profession, but our, our podcasting life. This is what we hear. We hear really great stories and we hear a lot of distressing stories. Yeah. And so we're going to get to our guest in a second. There's really a short letter from Whitney, who's a Navy wife. And I just want to read it because it sort of leads into the idea of, um, you know, she wants to talk about a fear-based medical system. So that's what we're going to talk about. She was our contest winner. We were grateful for all of you that sent in um, suggestions. We had over 300 of them. Oh, really? You found that out? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's amazing. No, I went through them. You counted I them? I tallied them. Yeah. Wow, yeah. amazing. Well, I'm OCD. <laughs> it's true. I read every one of them, too. <laughs> yeah. 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 We came yeah. out with like 10 finalists, and then we sort of just they were amazing. narrowed it down. Uh, okay, so last last bit, bit here is from Whitney. I wish my with my first two children, I, I knew what I now know. I'm sure you hear it often. Yes, we do. But I was induced at 39 weeks with my first, then scared into a C-section at 39 weeks with my second because he was, quote, too big, unquote. He weighed eight pounds, four ounces. I saw a meme today on Instagram that said, you only, you only, you only know what your baby weighs after it's born. <laughs> yeah. Or something to that effect. <laughs> right. So all these people with these estimated feet of weights, your baby's growth restricted, your baby's too big. And then you have, like we talked about in a previous podcast, we had a baby that was five pounds, seven ounces at 36 weeks, mm -hmm. which is the 30th percentile. And yet they were labeling her all along growth restricted and they yeah. induced her for growth restriction. Yeah. Here we have somebody who was um, scared into a C section at 39 weeks because the baby was just over eight pounds. Don't do it. Don't believe it. And once again, these are the standard bearers of my profession who sit in judgment of me and you and all the midwives in the country. Okay. These are the people that make the rules or they lobby the legislatures to make the rules. And, you know, they need to clean their own house first, but that isn't going to happen. Amen. No, it's that 1% of you people having births at home. You're the problem. <laughs> right. Right. You, you people who are... We can't trust your APGAR scores because you inflate your APGAR scores. Yeah, this is a real thing. But uh... Yeah, just real briefly, I, somebody sent me a, a, a article from uh, Amos Grunbaum, one of the famous uh, uh, former Cornell home birth haters. And, uh, but, but I found, I saw that was from 2015, so I'm not sure why she sent it now. But he basically said, you can't trust APGAR scores from home births because midwives lie. I'm paraphrasing. Okay. He used much more eloquent terminology yeah. to say that. Yeah. But that's what that's why I'm just saying that. Okay. So my husband was deployed at the time, and I honestly was just terrified after talking with my OBGYN about all the quote risks, unquote. So I agreed. 
I now know I was just another statistic to them, just quick medicine. They wanted my birth on their schedule, not mine. I'm grateful for your podcast. I'm learning so much. We are trying to convince our third. Oh, conceive. Yeah, she wrote convince, but it meant to be conceive our we, third. We think. <laughs> well, maybe she's just maybe she's just pregnant, just talking to the baby, telling the baby to come out magically, right? <laughs> and if when that happens, it is our hope to have a home birth. Yay. Right. I will tell you, I don't know if you had one C-section or two. I can't really Second, tell. I thought well, I don't know what happened with the first one, okay. but I'm assuming she had a C-section. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of places now that are giving women a lot, really a hard time for VBAC after two mm -hmm. C-sections. Oh, yeah. Even though the ACOG, which again, we don't necessarily love ACOG, but when ACOG agrees with us, then we'll, we'll take it. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, but they're giving, so you got to find the right place. And, and I will say once again, that if you have to spend money, if you have to travel, um, make this birth experiences. If you can. If you can. Yeah. Make these birth experiences as valuable as you would any other life memorable event. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know what I just, I keep thinking about over and over again is it's just so sad to me that we have to have these traumatic birth experiences in order to decide to choose something different. Yes. I really, really hope that there's a shift in perspective and a cultural perspective and awareness amongst us birthing people um, that, you know, you don't have to wait to be traumatized. You can make, you, you've heard enough stories from people. You can, you can make this decision in your first experience so that you can just have some great birth experiences. Yeah, you know, it gets back to the first letter that we had where it's like, how do you respectfully talk to an OB who's bullshitting? Mm -hmm. And we gave a good answer to that, I thought. <laughs> uh -huh. But maybe after what you just said now, mm -hmm. maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's time to not be so respectful anymore. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's time to start standing up and screaming at these people and calling them out on it. Because how do you change anything that's so embedded by being meek and polite? I, I, I know that you're, yeah. I just wouldn't put myself in the situation where I would have to fight people unless I had a real medical condition and I didn't have a choice. That's me. That would be my thing. I wouldn't want to put myself well, in that Well, if you do that, you're going to have to leave the practice anyway if you call them out on it. But Yeah, I just wouldn't want to put myself in that situation where I'm having an antagonistic relationship with somebody that I've hired. Like that just doesn't make any sense to me. On the other hand, they don't seem to care that they're they're being antagonistic to your desires, and you and you hire them. Right. They're supposed to work for you. Exactly. Don't forget that they work yeah. for you. I mean, if you hire if you hire a, a handyman to come and fix some shelving, and they and they're crooked, you don't say thank you very much. It's been very nice for you to to do that work for me, and I really appreciate you. I'll pay you three times what you told yes. me in the beginning. You don't say that. Right. They work for you. Right. They okay. work for you. So Whitney ends by saying, I never thought I'd be able to have a vaginal birth after my cesarean, but now I have the confidence to at least advocate for myself. And I know it's possible. Yes, right. you can do it. You can do it. So without further ado, uh, let's talk to Julie. Okay, great. <laughs> Listen, um, this is exciting because this is a first for Bliss and I on the podcast. We have a contest winner. Yay. Yay. Uh, Congratulations. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Dr. Julie, exciting. Dr. Julie Hewitt. So Julie, I'm just going to read your bio that you sent me so that okay. um, people know who you are. And then, then we'll get into the, like, 
your uh, Instagram name <laughs> and um, <laughs> and then we'll t- a topic that you want to talk about, okay? Sure. So uh, Julie Hewitt is a clinical psychologist and a mother of two based here in Santa Monica. Dr. Hewitt has worked in hospitals and clinics, you poor thing, <laughs> around Los Angeles, supporting kids and parents, helping them heal from trauma through building connections. She is passionate about helping people who have felt silenced to make their voices heard. We love that. Which took on a very personal meaning to her this past year when she struggled against a fear-based medical system to deliver her breach on her own terms. Congratulations on that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It was Mm -hmm. quite a whirlwind, I have to say. (laughs) I I bet. I bet. Well, Well, we're we're really um, delighted to have you here with us and to hear your story. Yeah. So why don't we, why don't we start backwards and just, because that's, you know, something that we do things on the podcast without really planning very well, (laughs) but, but you had a, you had a, um, a breach birth. I did. Yeah. July 4th, my little firecracker. (laughs) So tell us about that. Where was it? Who did it? Who assisted you? I know you did it, but who assisted? Yeah. I delivered him, um, at Cedars in Los Angeles. Um, Mm-hmm. And I found a doctor who was trained and capable of doing a hospital delivery vaginally. Um, I had actually met with Dr. Flores, your associate, um, beforehand to explore home birth possibilities um, and ultimately felt like um, I wanted to be in a medical setting. Um, you know, I have, I have great respect for the medical field. My father was a doctor, um, you know, and yet there are many limitations. Um, but ultimately, I chose to deliver at Cedars. Um, had my son at 41 weeks. So he was fully cooked (laughs) at that point. Um, and my labor lasted a total of four hours from start to finish. Active labor was about four minutes. Wow. (laughs) That was intense. Yeah. He came out with a bang. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah, great. I mean, I mean you, you... he was footling by the time that I delivered him as well. So there were some concerns about, you know, whether, whether or not we should do that or not. And I ended up ultimately delivering in the OR. Um, but yeah, I think they do all their, all their breaches and twins and stuff. Mm-hmm. Still, most hospitals still do things in the OR. It's kind of a, a fallback on an old, old policy that's never really been thought out. I mean, if they can get yeah. a singleton mom who's pushing in the LDR down the hall if they need to for a c-section why why can't they do the same with a breach or a twin mom mm-hmm. but they, they, that's I, well, just the way they do it so and also they a, can bill a lot more for a c-section or a delivery in the or than they can for that <laughs> makes sense i i attended a breach vaginal delivery at cedars in a uh, labor and delivery room oh nice interesting yeah nice Okay, yeah. well, maybe maybe that's changed. I think that most hospitals still do that because I communicate with people around the country. Yeah, so, can we mention the doctor's name? Or no? Barry, uh, his name's Barry Brock. Yeah, Dr. Yeah. Barry Brock. That's yeah. the one we know. It has yeah. to be. It, ha- it had to be because there's nobody else. <laughs> I, I literally, um, I found out that my baby was breached like, you know, early on and did everything I could to turn him, you know, and that's a whole other story of how I kind of regret doing that because it sort of ruined the last few months of my pregnancy for me emotionally. Yeah. Um, but I decided at 38 weeks to change OBs and find someone who would be willing to explore vaginal delivery. So at 38 weeks, I saw Dr. Brock and he agreed to take me on as a patient. And then I had my son three weeks later. So it was, it was very like, last minute down to the wire, stressful, but 
Yeah, yeah. well, that, that's very typical with breaches is that you you end up making changes to practitioners like Barry or me or or David or anybody else in the very last minute. And sometimes I'll meet somebody some afternoon and by 10 o'clock that evening, they're in labor. And I've already, I've only known them for like six hours or something mm -hmm. like that. We've, we've had those together. Yeah. So, um, are you happy? Are you happy with that decision? Or are you wishing that you had, um that you had done a home birth or how are you feeling about that? Um, I'm proud of myself, really. You know, I think I did the best that I could with the information that I had. Um, I, I think the thing that hits me the hardest is knowing that, I, you know, I'm, I'm resourced, I'm privileged, I'm educated, you know, I have experience with the medical field because of my father, you know, there were people that were in the hospital that, you know, they don't speak English, they, they don't have that information or that education. They don't have the confidence. They've never had another child. There were lots of people, you know, who are having their first child and their, their breach. And you don't know what questions to ask. You don't know what your rights are as a parent. Um, and so, you know, I'm really grateful that things went the way they did for me. And I'm proud of myself that I, I fought so hard for something that I felt in my heart was so right for my family. Um, yeah. And yet I feel so sad for all of the people that don't get that opportunity. Yeah, you wrote yeah. to, you wrote to and, us. And Go ahead, Bliss. I was just going to say, who, who are you fighting? Um, <laughs> interestingly, so not just doctors. I mean, I love my regular OB. Um, uh -huh. she's wonderful. I've been with her for years, had my first daughter with her. Um, you know, but she's not trained in breach delivery. And so the, the recommendation was try an ECV, do the spinning babies, do acupuncture. Um, and then we'll plan the C-section at I think 38 weeks or something like that, or 39 weeks. Um, yeah. and that, that, those were my options. Um, and so it was, you know, trying to, mm -hmm. to, talk with my doctor and in other doctors in the practice, it was a different doctor that did the ECV and just hearing a lot of like, well, it's risky and, uh, and like just even the, the nonverbal communication around it, you know, you see the look on a doctor's yeah. face when you say that you want to try a vaginal delivery with a breech baby. Yeah. Um, you know, and as, as a parent, the last thing you want to do is something that would hurt your child. And, and right. there's this unspoken and sometimes directly spoken thing that you might hurt your baby. Um, and that, yeah. that was what I think, you know, prompted me to respond to your post on Instagram was that, that fear of, you know, God forbid something that I do cause my baby unnecessary pain and suffering. And how do I avoid that? Yeah. But also, you know, protect my heart, my soul and, and my values as a human being. Well, I think we were intrigued yeah. mostly because of your post when you said something about you want to discuss the uh, fear as, as coercion. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's a theme that runs through the home birthing world. Our podcast, almost every other, there's so many good resources, podcasts out there, uh, colleagues of ours that have podcasts. You know, we're, we're obviously not the only one, but this is a pervasive issue coming at it as a clinical psychologist. I have to admit that your Instagram name also was appealing to Bliss and I. <laughs> so, you know, it's Psycho Ju Psycho Dr. Julie and Psycho <laughs> is spelled with a K, but but do you want to tell us a little bit about um that title and then sure. also yeah. <laughs> um where you want to go with this topic today? Because the sure. floor is the floor is yours. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a, a smart aleck and I think a sense of humor is imperative in my profession, given some mm -hmm. of the pain that we deal with. Um, and I also wanted to sort of my whole, my whole career life has also been about dialectics and, and 
I'm a psychologist and I have a lot of knowledge and wisdom and education and how to support people in dealing with their own stuff. And I'm a human being and I have my own stuff. So I can even be a little crazy sometimes myself, you know? Um, so I think instead of saying like psych, Dr. Julie, I wanted to say psycho, Dr. Julie, kind of playing a little bit at words, you know, and saying like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm human as well. And we're all in this together. Well, don't, don't psychologists have it. this reputation and, um, and therapists have this reputation of like being a little bit sort of psycho. <laughs> all, that's, yeah. That's why yeah. they went into the profession in the first place. I mean, this in the lay population, that's what we all think anyway. Yeah. I mean, I observed, you know, when I went into graduate school for, for psychology, I was really stoked because I was like, I'm going to be around all these like-minded, deep feeling, thinking people. And I found that half of us were, were those people. And the other half were sort of the, like similar to the medical field, the, like, I'm the authority. Let me tell you how to run your life. The sort of ego, arrogant, like to be up here while your patients are down here below you kind of model. Um, yeah. so it's, it's a mixed bag, but I, I would say all of us, you know, there's a reason you get interested in human behavior and talking with people through their, their problems. It does something for us and it impacts us. And to deny that is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So fear, fear as coercion. I mean, clearly it's a theme that permeates uh, yeah. the medical profession. Uh, we've, we've seen it for the last two years. Um, yes. Well pronounced, but it's been going on for more than, you know, for hundreds of years. Um just now with social media and with everything, it's so accentuated. But what is there? Were there specific things, or what drove you to bring use this as your topic? What what were you specifically wanting to address? And and you have some ideas about how we fix it? Yeah, that's a lot of questions in one question. Let's see. Let me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, I think it spoke to me, you know, because. Um, at the time when I responded to your post, I was actually sitting in the waiting room of the NICU um, where my son was for several weeks. Um, and so having to make a lot of really important medical decisions about a very fragile baby um, and feeling a lot of anxiety and stress about those things. And um, I was really just interested in um, exploring this sort of, again, the dialectic of like, how do I I don't know what's best for my child because I'm not a doctor. And yet I know what my instincts tell me. I know what my heart tells me. Um, I'm, I'm hearing the, as a psychologist, I'm trained to pay attention to the language that people use because the way that you speak has meaning as well as what you say. Um, and just noticing the way that people in the medical profession speak and communicate um, and how a confusing it can be, how filled with jargon it is. And luckily I understand a lot of that jargon, but so many don't. Um, and so that was one aspect of it. Um, the other side of it is I, I do neuropsychological testing in my practice and I, I assess kids with developmental disabilities, delays, autism, learning disabilities, um, mood challenges, kind of, you name it. Um, and a lot of times people that do testing are really focused on what's wrong with the child or what's wrong with the person, you know, psychology in, in its essence is diagnostic. And so is the medical field where, you know, we're looking for a problem to assess and treat. Um, and my approach has always been different. And I think a bit, um, I, I've been kind of teased and made fun of about it a bit in the sense of like, I really focus on what's going well and what's working and how you capitalize on that. Um, and, you know, even in psychology to bill insurance for testing or for people to get paid, um, reimbursed for the assessments that they pay for 
you have to have a CPT code that gives a diagnosis. Um, and they have to have a medically necessary diagnosis, meaning that the insurance company has deemed it severe enough that they will, are willing to pay for it. Um, and so a lot of times I see a child that has some minor challenges, um, and yet I have to give them this label in order for their parents to get the financial compensation that they're entitled to. Um, and those labels, and like I said, words have meaning. Those labels impact how a parent sees their child, how a parent feels about themselves, how that child sees themselves. Um, well, and yeah, it, follows, I, it follows them their entire life then too. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. And, and I see so many parents who are scared and worried. Is my child developing normally? What's going on here? Um, you know, is this healthy? Is this unhealthy? Is this normal? And is it not normal? And that's, I think, the biggest thing. And development and human beings are, it's a, it's a window. We are all so different. And there is, there are themes that we can detect about how people's bodies work and how people's minds work, but we still don't know. There is still so much mystery. And I think the thing that I have a problem with is doctors speak with such certainty about things that they really aren't certain about. My, my mother is a nurse and she likes to joke that it's called practicing medicine (laughs) because, because it's practice, you know, in a sense. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, finding, and I, my own father was this way too, you know, an educated informed doctor who also has, you know, humility and warmth and people skills can be challenging, especially when there's a risk issue involved. Plus you were going to say something. You mentioned that your baby was in the NICU, and I know that you you started the conversation saying that there were some things you couldn't talk about, but I think it's kind of the elephant in the room for, for the listeners to know um, you had, it sounds like you had a pretty straightforward breach delivery, mm-hmm. um, and you made the choice to have a vaginal delivery in the hospital. So I just want to know if you can just fill us in a little bit about um, the reason why your baby was in the NICU so that we can understand mm-hmm. if it was correlated to the delivery itself? Um, it, we're not sure at this point. Um, basically at, at some point that we don't know when, um, and we're still, you know, in that process of figuring that out, but at some point he had a stroke and seizures, um, as a result. And how is he doing now? Um, he's at home. We've had him home for just a little bit over a week. Um, he's actually going to be a month old on the fourth um, he's on medication and we're having lots of follow-ups and lots of continuing doctor's appointments and things like that. Um, and so that the advocacy and the conversations continue about, um, you know, what's the best course of action for him and, and what he needs. Um, and it's kind of a wait and see approach, unfortunately, in terms of how he develops as a result of all of this, but that's, that's been another conversation in terms of, um, you know, I, I'm um, also an assistant professor at UCLA. And so I have access to the, the library and medical journals and, and I read them <laughs> and, um, you know, doing a lot of research on, you know, what's happened and the different medications that he's on and their impact on development and things like that. Um, and then I'm sure, I'm sure his doctors find me very annoying because I come at them with lots of questions, <laughs> um, and even yeah. citations of research and things like that. But again, that's, that's my privilege that I can do that. And there are so many other people out there that aren't able to. And as a clinical psychologist, with your own clients, I mean, do you take insurance? Um, you work for UCLA, so you're mm. are you salaried employee? How does it work for you? Yeah, so I actually have transitioned fully into my own private practice because of all the red tape, bureaucracy, and nonsense that I've encountered in working in hospitals. Um, I really enjoyed working with you know disadvantaged populations and people that were having to use Medi-Cal and health insurance. 
Um, but A, it doesn't, um, you know, pay as well in terms of benefits and life, life and living in Santa Monica and having two children. Um, and B, the amount of um, work, you know, they're all about productivity and billing and how many minutes you spend with clients and how you code things and taxonomies. And um, it, I sort of lost touch with my own humanity in that sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't accept insurance. I'm an out-of-network provider. And so I give people a super bill, which they can then submit to their insurance for reimbursement. So I do occasionally have to interface with the insurance companies, um, but I do it through the, the clients that I work with and I try to empower them to do it. But you chose to do you chose to do this because it was driving you crazy, I'm assuming, <laughs> because you actually yeah. care mm-hmm. and you and you being a cog in the wheel didn't work for you. Yeah, I mean the the hospitals um, for LA County that I've that I've worked for most of them have contracts with LA County Department of Mental Health, and they have a big thing. And in general, psychology has a big thing about evidence based practice, right? And and things are only evidence based if and when you study them, <laughs> essentially. And so the things that get the most attention are the things that get the most funding, and the things that tend to get the most funding are the manualized, sort of robotic, you know, ABC algorithm treatments. Um, and there are things within those approaches that are very useful, but there's no allowance for flexibility, um, at all. Yeah. I mean, we see that in, in, in OBGYN, the coding and such. I remember one podcast recently, I talked about the fact that I did a vacuum on somebody at home and I tried to find a code for it. You'd think there'd be a simple code for a successful vacuum. And then the location of the birth is a different, it's a, it's a modifier, but they didn't have one. They had a code for a vacuum that fails. It goes to forceps or C-section or a vaginal mm-hmm. delivery, but nothing for a successful vacuum. And it, it's so frustrating because it's such a common thing. So what did they, did they, did they have a mind freeze that day when they were sitting around the table and coming up with codes or you know, who are these people that do that? And why do I have to give a code in order for this woman to pay, get paid or reimbursed for services that I provided? Um, mm-hmm. The only people that profit from something like that, of course, are going to be the administrative uh, middle pay- middlemen that that right. have a job. I think, they have a job because they have coding. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of the, from a psychological perspective, a lot of the fear that gets transmitted to the patients is actually projected fear that the the physicians or the hospitals have themselves about liability, about you know how's this going to look who my supervisor is going to be following up on me and i need to be able to tell them i did a b c and d otherwise i can't answer their questions you know so I mean, it's contagious it really is and i think it starts you know at the top level and trickles down if you want to say um 100% 100% we talk about that all the time like when we go into a birth room it's our responsibility to to come as a empty vessel so to speak and leave the fear behind so that this woman can actually have the opportunity to have somebody who believes in her and what's happening. So I, I agree with that emphatically. Yes. And that's, you know, what you said, Dr. Stu, about someone being able to say, I'm not sure, let me think about that. You know, as a psychologist, that's my biggest tool as well, because I don't know everything. And I, I may know, I may be an expert on a certain topic, but I'm not an expert on you. You know yourself better than I do. I only have this sort of like textbook knowledge of what this tends to look like. And those two things have to be able to interact fluently. Otherwise we can't find a solution that, that works for both of us. Yeah. Right. The limitate, the limitations put on the, the interaction between practitioner and client um, are all artificial. Um, they're not how human beings interact. It's not like you go to your grandma's house and after 55 minutes say, 
time's up, grandma, gotta go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, you, yeah. just don't, you don't, you don't do that. And you don't, you're not limited by what you can ask or what you can say uh, in a normal human discourse. This all, it's all, and especially in the talking specialties like yours, where you, you know, talking and listening, um, that should be in all the specialties, but the way the system is set up with low reimbursement, high volume, there is no talking discourse. There's, there's lecturing and see you next week. And that's how it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and then there's the documentation that has to occur afterwards. You know, I always joke that I didn't become a therapist to write notes <laughs> and to do paperwork. Um, yeah. you know, and, and even in private practice, you still have to do that paperwork. It's an ethical legal requirement. It's also clinical best practice, but, um, you know, I was, because I was trained in hospitals, I was trained to document in a sort of CYA kind of, kind of approach <laughs> in a sense Defensive of like, you know, make sure you've crossed your eyes, dotted your, you know, crossed your T's, dotted your eyes. Well, yeah. That's a good question for me. When you're in the hospital and say you're looking up a medical record and say you're called to consult on somebody who's in for a medical problem, but you're the clinical psychologist, they call you to a room to go consult on somebody who's just had a hysterectomy or something. I don't know if that happens to you. Um, when I get a chart from Kaiser or from UCLA on a, on a woman, um, it's sometimes 70, 150 pages long mm-hmm. with multiple cut and paste redundant H and P's or you know, clearly they didn't do a full review of systems when they came in, you were in there in the room for seven minutes or whatever else. And, 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 the, but the review of the systems is, is, is printed out in there. That's what I, one of the huge flaws I find with um, electronic medical records is it makes it so easy to just click boxes, almost, you almost templates. Have yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were trained to write our notes in a sort of formula. They're called soap notes. It's like yep. subjective, objective assessment, assessment and plan, you know, mm-hmm. um, and there, especially with the evidence-based practice piece, there are specific key terms and you can now program these records to populate those sentences for you automatically based on little buttons that you click. Um, and I, I've done it myself as a provider, but I've also in reviewing my own medical records and my son's medical records have seen a, the redundancy, the repetitiveness, um, you know, things that don't really make sense. Um, I, for instance, I had struggled with breastfeeding and in one of the notes that said breastfeeding is going well. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's not exactly what happened not for me. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think people, people just get on autopilot and they're just click, 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 got my note done. Now I can go to lunch kind of, kind of approach sometimes. Um, yeah, I mean, that I know for on a, on a question. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Bliss. Um, that touches on a question that I would love to ask you as a clinical psychologist. I think um, when Dr. Stu introduced you, one of the, your specialties is trauma, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So um, being in your own experience of, of having a baby in the NICU, I imagine was very traumatic for you. And um, I just want to, first of all, say my heart goes out to you as a mother about that experience and what you're probably still feeling having some unanswered questions, but do you feel like, um, your, your degree helped you? Do you feel like you were just a mom, you know, going through the same, same struggles that any mom would be? Do you feel like maybe that's going to direct your, your future, um, direction of your practice in any way or influence your practice in any way? I'm really curious. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, 
even before this, I considered myself a trauma survivor in my own life. Um, and I think the way that I have coped is to mobilize resources and to really be proactive about connection and support. And, you know, that I, I'm not the only person who's been through this and and everybody else, you're not alone. We've all, you know, experienced this thing. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about how we can make it better, who we can talk to. And yeah, my education and my background a hundred percent helped me cope through everything. Um, because I could sort of compartmentalize, you know, um, in a healthy sense of like, feel my feelings and then mobilize myself to have these conversations with doctors, to ask the questions, to read the research articles and to kind of switch modes a little bit. Um, and I, I think it helped me advocate for my son. Um, you know, because I work with children, I'm very familiar with, you know, occupational therapy, speech and language therapy, physical therapy, um, you know, all the different types of professions. And so I, I knew whose role was what and who to ask what questions to. And again, that's why I feel so awful for the parents that don't have that experience because they wouldn't begin to know how to navigate it. It's absolutely going to shape how I approach my work with the parents that I work with. Um, but also my, my, I have a friend and we've been talking about, you know, there's gotta be some way, and I know hospitals are very protective about who they let in and what they allow. Um, but there's gotta mm-hmm. be some sort of network or some sort of position that can be, can be created for someone who's available to parents to help them advocate when their children are experiencing medical challenges or when they're experience, you know, and for women too, you know, I mean, you guys are doing amazing work. Um, and I mean, I, I Googled and, you know, scrolled Instagram and was really grateful and lucky to find you all. Um, there are resources out there, but you really have to work your butt off to find them. And I want to make those things more accessible to people. Um, and I want women and parents to understand their rights and have the confidence to express and advocate for themselves. Yeah. Did you not have a social worker available to you? Uh huh. You did, but you didn't <laughs> feel like that person could really. <laughs> could really that was that help was. You, you know, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting the way you said that. You said something earlier about. Mm-hmm. The way we speak has meaning as much as what we say. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and uh, that uh huh was yeah. just yeah. Perfect. Well, just perfect. I, I mean, I can say as someone who has worked in a hospital setting, you are an employee of the hospital regardless of your human status, and that that unfortunately yeah. in those moments is the most important thing that you have to hold in your mind. Um, so yeah, that's all I'll say. Really, <laughs> do you have any say or any I, I, idea? I can, I can understand. Do you have any say or any idea why? who the people are or what they're thinking, the people that make these policies. Bliss and I kind of bang our heads Mm -hmm. against the wall all the time. Like recently in a recent podcast, we talked about a woman who came in and had twins at a hospital and tested positive for COVID. So they sent their babies to another hospital. Oh my God. And they're not going to allow her to see her babies until she's test negative for 10 days. And it's like, she's not sick. She just, you know, she ended up having the obligatory COVID test. Well, and shouldn't that be her choice? Those are her babies. Well, that's right. Exactly. And talk about trauma for Mm -hmm. everyone involved. Yeah, the the babies uh, and the mother, but the babies especially, Mm -hmm. they have no idea Mm -hmm. what's going on. And and Mm -hmm. so what happens to people? This is, you know, because you're a psychologist. What happens to people? Nobody goes into freshman year of college, the idea that I'm going to become a hospital administrator and I'm going to get in the way of people um, seeing their parents when they're dying, or I'm going to get in the way of, or we're going to have rules about every baby that's born with this has to go to the NICU and be separated from its mother, even if it's fine, 
because that's the policy. Mm-hmm. How does it go from a person who is playing video games and, and going to parties when they're a freshman to becoming these administrative monsters? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's a that's a tricky one to figure <laughs> out. Um, from my well, you're a psychologist, so I'm asking. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, I, I can speak to kind of my experience <laughs> with those people because I've worked directly under several of them. Um, you know, they're they all were human beings at a certain point, and we're yes. very in touch with their humanness. Um, and somewhere along the way, they become a cog in the machine, in a sense. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it speaks to what I said earlier about the fear and the trickling down. Those positions yeah. are highly competitive very high paying. And it's almost like being a tenured professor. You're protected, you're paid well, you're in charge of a lot of stuff. You're, you're well revered by all of these different professions. And so it can be a big ego boost in that sense too. And then along with all of that privilege, responsibility, power comes the fear of losing it. Um, and I think golden handcuffs. Yes. And what I have seen happen too, is there's, there's definitely like a, um, I can't think of the word, but like an inheritance kind of structure in these hospital positions where, you know, you go in as an administrator to replace a former administrator and you're expected to sort of carry on their work in a sense, even though you're a different person and maybe the hospital wants to go in a different direction. There's like a legacy. That's, I guess the word maybe would, that I would use um, and it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like this phenomenon in human beings where we just kind of keep doing things the way that we've been doing them, even when they're not working, you know? Um, and it's, there's yeah. a, there's a saying in like Alcoholics Anonymous of like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And that's what happens in these yeah. systems. They're just beating a dead horse and wanting things to change, but there's 30 people on the board that have to approve something. And everybody has a different opinion and a different investment in the decision that gets made. And so it's, it's politics. It really is. But isn't, doesn't that just speak to our entire culture? Yes, I mean, it does. Aren't, it really we, does. aren't we as a culture stuck in, mm-hmm. in those kind of things and just doing the same thing over and over again? Because we have so many broken systems. It's not just the hospital system, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think it's kind of inherent to our culture right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you, Stu, you had mentioned, you know, how do, you, how do we change this? How do we shift this moving forward? Um, you know, my experience as a psychologist, and we talked a lot about change, right? How do you help people facilitate change in their lives? Because it is hard to change. Um, we're creatures of habit. We tend to kind of keep doing things the way they're, that we're doing them and then adjust our ability to tolerate the pain that it creates as opposed to changing our behavior. Um, I have observed and experienced in my career and in my life that the way that people change is by having new experiences. Um, that it's like experiential learning, right? We can talk about this until we're blue in the face. We can give people information and until they're flooded and overwhelmed, but how do they actually do something with that information? Um, and so I think, you know, providing people with hope, that's why I think connection is so important and supporting and finding people that are in the same experience as you. Um, and then having a new experience. Um, and I don't know what that looks like in terms of medical. I mean, you guys have birthing, like birthing centers, you know, I'm, I, when I had my daughter and then when I had my son, I reread, you know, the Ina May's guide to childbirth. Um, you know, the books like that, that are, you know, just remind you, we've been doing this for centuries, millennia, even, you know, like our bodies were born to do these things. Um, and I think, you know, I've seen something do that you've written about, you know, like, <laughs> having a child should not be a medical procedure. (laughs) It's a beautiful, natural event. It's not necessarily like 
a surgical, you know, like something requiring hospitalization. Yeah, I use the example. It's like breathing or digestion. You don't have to think about it. And only when something goes wrong, do you mm-hmm. then have to deal with You get pneumonia or you get uh, colitis, you, you know, you, then you go. But every yeah. other day and the same thing with pregnancy. But, it, you know, this, this is a huge issue. We're not going to solve it here. Mm-hmm. But I but I like your t- I like hearing your take on it because it is a psychological issue that goes on in the hospital. You know, you could tell you could ask a nurse. I you know I use this example all the time of baby's born and 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 you finally cut, you cut the cord even if you cut it right away or you cut it and then the baby goes to the warmer and you ask the nurse well why does the baby need to go to the warmer and the nurse says well I have to check the baby out and you go well why do you need to check the baby out the baby's fine and it's well and and they don't really they're sort of in a hamster wheel mm-hmm. and if somebody like me comes along or bliss or anybody else who comes along and to, starts to question them, then cognitive dissonance gets in the way. And then they begin to beat on you as if, because, because you are making them so uncomfortable, you are the bad person. Mm-hmm. You need to shut up. This is a psychological thing. Obviously this is your specialty. And mm-hmm. so it's really hard to change. And the, and the old Japanese proverb about what do you do with the nail that stands out as you pound it back in again. And so if anybody, yeah, mm-hmm. anybody tries to make a change in the way the hospital does something like saying, you know, you're not taking my babies to the NICU because I, they had a, because my baby had a vacuum. My mm-hmm. baby is fine. But our policy says it has to go to the NICU and observe for four hours. No. Mm-hmm. People need to know that they can do that. Now, the big hammer, of course, is if they don't listen to the hospital, then the hospital threatens child protective services and those sorts of things. So going to take or says something like if you don't do this and something goes wrong with your baby it's your choice but if something happens then that's your responsibility essentially which yeah, i was told that many times and that's you know? true <laughs> that and that's the, and that that's the sort true. of coercive di- language right is like hey this is absolutely your right as a mother as a parent as a woman but know that if you do this x y and z and and it, it is a form of informed consent but it's the way again it's not what's being said but it's how and when it's being said that is the coercive aspect of things yeah but they never tell you by taking the baby to the nursery that if something happens in the long term or short term because they took the baby to the nursery that they're going to that they're they never tell you that that's a possibility mm-hmm. that the breastfeeding may not right. not go as well that your baby May there may be a, an attachment problem. There may they they don't tell you that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and yeah. So you know, common sense is usually right, and when a, when some rule goes against common sense, the rule is usually wrong, and it's not complicated. And yet, no. yet the job of an administrator is to take something like I always joke about. If my microscope breaks in my office, I go out and buy a new microscope. If a microscope breaks at UCLA. It'll take about 14 months and 15 committees and six different Lots bids to get to get a to get a new microscope. So meanwhile, you'll have no microscope for for mm-hmm. 15 months because they can't make a decision. Yeah. I mean, my 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 father used to always say common sense ain't so common. <laughs> you know, it's it's true. Um, but yeah, but I mean, it, I think- it is in the it is in the uh, in the general population, it actually is. Yeah. The farther up the academic chain you go. The mm-hmm. less it becomes so. That's why mm-hmm. famous quote from uh, William Buckley, who said he'd rather be governed by the first 535 names in the Boston phone book than the entire faculty of Harvard University. 
and <laughs> because there's more common sense in the first 500 names in the Boston phone book. And, and that's true. Yeah, that's true. The average yeah, taxi I mean, I, driver knows more. I think what's actually happened is we've gone backwards in the last, you know, 20 years or so in terms of medical care and understanding the human condition. You know, we've, we've gotten in attempt to try and manage and control and improve. It's, it's kind of like technology, right? Like technology has granted us access to so much. And yet there are so many people suffering because they're isolated, they're depressed. You know, having friends on social media does not translate the same way as being physically in the room with a, a person that cares about you. You know, we've become yeah. mechanized. Very true. Very true. And, you know, it's a bigger, it's a bigger issue than, uh, than the, again, it's a bigger issue than the hospital system. It's, it's how we're doing everything. Right. Mm -hmm. So it has been such a fascinating conversation. I'm so glad that we got a chance to learn about your recent birth and your perspective on all of this. And, um, thank you for being a fellow traveler and reaching out and, 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 joining this competition, not, what was it? Contest, not a competition. Um, and we're so glad that we got to, to meet you and, and talk to you more. Um, why don't you tell, um, our listeners where they can find you? Where's the best place for them to reach out to you and connect with you if they want to learn more about your work? Sure. Um, I have a very um, tiny little boring website that just has my contact information. <laughs> um, it's www.drjuliehewitt.com. It's my, basically my name, <laughs> um, my email address and my phone number is there. My practice is in Santa Monica. They can also follow you at, at psycho with P-S-Y-K-O, Dr. Julie, D-R Julie um, on Instagram, if you want more followers. And also just lastly, the last thing I would ask you to do if to sum up is Again, your topic was fear of coercion. Now we've talked, we know in our, our field a lot about that, but from your experience, are there any other, what are some of the other examples, whether, it, whether it's in internal medicine or other examples, maybe your father's giving you some stories, just something about how fear is used in other aspects of our society that, that bother you the most? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, just, as a, as a sort of developmentally oriented psychologist and a mother myself, you know, talking to people about child development and, you know, what's normal and what's not normal. I think that that comes up all the time for me personally, you know, I'm, I'm watching my, my daughter, she's two and a half and I'm like, okay, like, is she walking on time? Is she talking on time? And we have these like check sheets that say like child should be walking between, you know, like 11 and 12 months or starting to, um, but there are kids that don't start walking until they're two or three years old and they're completely fine as adults. Um, you know, I have a friend that I grew up with who had something similar that happened with my son to him. He was diagnosed with cerebral palsy as a result and, um, told that he would never walk. His parents were told that he might not talk and he didn't do any of those things until he was about three years old and he's an engineer now and, and very well <laughs> physically. Um, I, I think that doctors are trained in, in what ifs and possibilities. And they're a little bit too stuck in the future. And I think, you know, if there's anything that I try to help people focus on is be in the moment, you know, you can only predict or know what you know in the moment. And if you go too far into the future, I mean, that's the very definition of having an anxiety disorder, either being too far in the past or in the future, um, being able to be in the moment and understand that the human condition is not a formula. Um, and that anybody who tries to tell you like, Oh, Hey, you're not, you're not sticking to the formula. Oh, you're, you're outside of this window. There's something wrong here. 
um, you know, that that's not true. Thank you. We all, we use the word algorithm, but you've got, I like the word formula that life, that medicine life is not an algorithm. Not everybody falls on the, on the curve, exactly where they're supposed to fall. People fall off the curve. And when you're mm -hmm. off the curve, that's a, that's a diagnosis. There's a, probably an ICD nine, uh, ICD dash 10 code for that. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. but that's, that's, it's wrong to think that way. Yeah. We love our, our graphs. Yeah. And, our and charts. I, would, I would send it back. I would send it back to, you know, nature as being our, our greatest teacher, you know, mm -hmm. that nature is organic and there aren't algorithms and, and, mm -hmm. and specific uh, things that they look to. We just look at nature as being different and, and uh, beautiful, you yeah. know? So, I mean, yeah. I think there's and another very basic example of what you're asking Dr. Stu is like, when you go to the OB and you have an abnormal pap smear, all that means is that something something wasn't fitting in the formula. 99% of the time you have some sort of coposcopy or follow-up and it's nothing. I had that happen to me twice. Right. And I freaked out because I was like, oh my God, I have an abnormal cells in my uterus. What is this? Um, sometimes also those tests get contaminated because they're not handled properly. Um, you know, so I think it's we just have to understand that there is no normal, quote unquote, there is only human. <laughs> And there's always a, and there's always a second opinion. Yes. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Julie, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. That was a great interview with Julie. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And we look forward to connecting with you again next week. Yeah. Maybe we'll do that contest again next year. Maybe we'll make it an annual. Oh, you liked it? A little bit. Yeah. I, I liked reading all the suggestions. Yeah. Great. Suggestions. It was great. Okay, everybody. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 